everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. All right, it's been done. Season five has been completed, or I shall say, at least by me for the very first time. And I have so many thoughts to share about season five. I have a little confession here as well. This episode has been really challenging to record. Not just the recap, but everything, because I am distracted. I, along with many, many, many people out there, am now very preoccupied with trapsing the landscape of Hyrule Kingdom in the new Legend of Zelda. This two-week break between seasons came at the right time. In fact, you can say I will spend the next two weeks on my own odyssey. And yes, there is an eye roll for me on that. Summertime is right around the corner. And this year, dear listeners, I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone with the vegetables I am choosing to grow. In addition to my cherry tomatoes. P.S. Did you know there's such thing as a chocolate sprinkles tomato? I picked up a jalapeno plant, as well as two bell peppers, orange, and did you know, there are purple bell peppers too. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled The Odyssey and debuted on March 19th, 1979. The episode was written by Carol and Michael Rochael and directed by... Michael Landon. We begin on a close-up of time rushing by. It's a stream, creek, water, and we're watching it as it rushes by. And just like the name of the episode, the conversation that is taking place off-screen is about the Odyssey, and more specifically about the part about a bag full of vapors. I mean, wind. FYI, this is a voice we've never heard before. Oh, and P.S., Albert and Laura are also there. As the camera pulls back and pans to the side, the third voice begins to tell us about that part in the Odyssey about the cannibalizing Lestragonians. We finally see Laura and Albert sitting high up on a tree. We also see the source of the third voice. It's a boy painting a picture, not by numbers, and the picture is of the ocean. And this young painter tells his audience that it took Odysseus 10 years to get home. And staring at his picture, he wishes aloud how he could be like Odysseus and see the ocean. We also find out his father is not with us. It's at this moment Laura and Albert remember they have somewhere else they have to be and then get up and leave. And this kid, teen, not entirely sure, but I will say this, his peach fuzz pencil thin mustache is definitely getting picked up on the camera. And he looks back at his oceanscape painting and hmm, he does really good work. The closed captions describe seagulls, a flock of them, crying we immediately find ourselves still with this teen, but now working on a different oceanscape painting at his house. His mother comes in the room and calls him honey and says it's late. And this artsy teen with the pencil thin peach fuzz mustache looks at his work and bemoans, ugh, something's not right. His mom comes over and expects the painting. She calls his work moody and says it needs some sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. Oh, she also calls him Dylan. We're informed it's 9.30 at night, and Dylan is insistent on finishing his work. His mom says, There's always tomorrow. It is another day. There's no response from Dylan. She continues, Well, fiddle-dee-dee, I'll just go make some hot chocolate. As she heads to the kitchen to make some hot chocolate, in the background, those walls are covered in a number of oceanscape 
paintings. From off screen, all of a sudden, we hear, Oh no! Another nosebleed! Dylan's mom runs to help him. With a towel in hand, she tells him to tip his head back, and we find out this is Dylan's third nosebleed this week. His mom says that it's time to take him to Doc Baker, and Dylan, no, not Doc Baker. It's only a nosebleed. However, although she describes Dylan as the man of the house, she is putting her foot down. As she is helping Dylan to bed, the camera zooms in on the rocks in his painting, as well as the lantern on the table. And we get a nice transition to a lantern that's being used to help Doc Baker look through his microscope. Doc Baker inquires to Dylan how he feels about school. Dylan says, uh, I like most subjects. He finds math challenging and informs us Laura is helping him out with that. Doc Baker inquires if he plays sports with Albert during recess. And Dylan says, eh, I'm not much of a sports person. I've got knees that ache and the nosebleeds don't help. Doc Baker tells him to put his shirt on and to come meet him out in the office. And out in the office, Dylan's mom is there. And he tells her, your son's lazy. Just kidding. What he says is Dylan doesn't lead an active life. And his mom agrees. He also inquires if Dylan's the kind of kid who gets sick frequently. You know, colds, fevers, sore throats, and such. And Dylan's mom says, more so in the last six months. Why, is something wrong? At this time, Dog Baker pulls up a magic eight ball and shakes it, and it responds with a all signs point to yes. His symptoms and blood work, Dog Baker says, suggest a disease. And he seriously repeats all the ailments he just listed again, but this time with more details, and says, we used to call this rudimentic fever. Dylan's mom used to be called? Well, we dodged a bullet there. Doc Baker says, um, it's not that. But he then prescribes Dylan plenty of bed rest and the least amount of exertion possible. Dylan's mom inquires, what is it then? Doc Baker takes a moment before putting his hand onto her shoulder and says the magic word, leukemia. She's taking a moment to process. She's still processing. Finally, she inquires how long. Doc Baker is nice enough to say there's a window, six months to six weeks, maybe. This is when Dylan sticks his head out into the room did you forget about me? You know, because it is his health after all. He should be a part of this conversation. But no, Moody Dylan says, Are we done? Can I get back to my paints? And no one stops him. In fact, Doc Baker opens the door to let him and his mom leave. We're back at Dylan's place. We get a shot of her hands washing dishes before it moves up and focuses on her head while Dylan steps into the background. He's come in to complain about these new rules. He has to stay indoors. She tells Dylan that Doc Baker had prescribed to simply take it easy. And Dylan, unfortunately being left in the dark, tells his mom, I'm fine. But she snaps back, no arguments. It's for your own good. And Dylan legit calls BS on this. He knows that phrase is code for not being told the truth. And he inquires if there is anything wrong, wouldn't we have gotten medication? Dylan's mom, quietly. Yes, the prescription was to rest. And Dylan starts to seem confused. Dylan's mom continues, there isn't any medicine. So it's like a rash. It's just going to kind of clear up on its own. His mom once again says no. And Dylan's starting to understand. And he approaches his mom from behind and says, Don't cry, mom. And that's when she loses it and turns to hug her son. 
we find ourselves with Albert, Laura, and Dylan. Dylan's just staring at his painting. He's very quiet. They inquire if anything is up. And Dylan tells them he's listening to his painting. Can you hear it? He then turns his attention to Laura and Albert. Can I trust you with a secret? And I would say yes to Albert, but mm, Laura's track record speaks for itself. Dylan announces later tonight he is heading off to see the Pacific Ocean. He has to do it now. And finally he tells them, I'm gonna die. Cut to Laura and Albert leaving that scene. And there's an eye roll from me when the first thing we hear from Laura is, we have to tell his ma. But Albert is respecting Dylan's wishes and tells Laura we can't do that and explains Dylan doesn't want his mom to see him die. She already had to witness his dad, her husband. And of course, it's made aware that Dylan has zero finances at this moment. And this is when Albert decides to volunteer his services because who survived three years on their own after running away from an orphanage? This kid right here. Laura protests, no, you can't. Albert, however, eh, I'm gonna do it anyway. And tells Laura he'll leave once Charles and Caroline are asleep. And uh, facepalm, cut to Charles in the barn. And in three, two, one, Laura arrives to tell, but not really tell, on Albert and Dylan. P.S. Charles is busy working on a toy that should be for baby Grace, but is in fact intended for Carrie's birthday tomorrow. If you wanted to do that child a favor, get her a book. The first thing we find out from Laura is that it is currently summer. A lot of time has passed since last episode's winter anthrax epidemic. Pa, if you only had one month to live, what would you do? Charles responds with, that's morbid. And why? Laura, uh, we're doing a poll. It's a summer project for school. Even though, like I just said, it was winter last episode. Charles takes a moment and confesses it's something he's never thought about, but does claim what he does want would take longer than a month. And what is that, dear listeners? Charles Ingalls would love to live long enough to see all of his children be happy and have families of their own. I'll let you have a moment with how sweet that is. It's almost too much. Somewhat satisfied with that response, Laura inquires, is that all? Oh, P.S. Laura's green dress still has some pink paint on it. Laura continues back to Dylan's plan without talking about Dylan's plan. Uh, would you help someone with their plan if they had a month to live? Charles takes a moment. I would. I would do my best to help them. Laura, feeling as though she has somewhat received permission, is pleased and says, thank you, Paul, and leaves. We cut to late night late late night up in the loft albert is packing and laura is up writing a note she's decided to come along and help dylan on his journey albert confused you don't leave a note when you're running away laura to her defense is going to stall for time by putting the letter inside one of carrie's presents at least this way they can worry and know where we are Albert groans about having to have a girl on the trip, and holy spit, this wrapping paper around Carrie's present? It's flashy. Somebody splurged. We cut to the next morning, and wow, all of Carrie's presents are wrapped in different flashy wrapping paper. That definitely wasn't cheap. Carrie, of course, is impatient, but can't open her presents without Laura and Albert. She is then set up with the impossible task of trying to locate them. And what does Carrie do? She stands in the middle of the room and yells up into the loft. When there's no response, Charles decides to look for them outside. Caroline, dang, she breaks, and decides to let Carrie open one present. And of course, Carrie opens Laura's present first and finds the letter. Dear Pa, what? It's not his birthday. 
Caroline rushes over, snatches the letter out of Carrie's hand, and continues to inform us that the two of them have headed out with Dylan, and not to worry because they won't miss any school because it's summer, summer, summertime. We cut to Laura, Albert, and Dylan, not really trapsing through the woods, and they come across a traveling salesman who informs them he's currently not open for business. Albert steps forward and says, we're not here to trade. He's actually trying to find employment. The salesman is not interested, but Albert explains his sales type experience and explains Laura can cook. He even boasts that one time he sold 12 umbrellas in the middle of a drought, which doesn't seem unreasonable. Anyone might want some shade on the prairie. We look over at Dylan. We can already say he's had a downgrade in his health. And curious? Apparently he knows this man and calls him Mr. McCabe and tells him we're only interested in finding pay so we can get on the railroad. The ocean is my destination. And that's when he starts to cough. Mr. McCabe has one eye. Ooh, Cyclops. And he can easily see this is not a typical cough and agrees to get Dylan on a train. Meanwhile, we're with Charles. He's talking with Dylan's mom. He inquires if Dylan knew he was sick, which who do you think told him, Charles? As she continues to read Laura's letter, she moves around the room and is surrounded by those paintings of coastal landscapes. If only I had some idea. I swear both her and Charles are man-looking. Finally, Dylan's mom says, oh, the ocean. Charles seems to think, this is impossible. That's over 2,000 miles away. They're never going to make it. With a smile, Dylan's mom confesses, that's not his reality. No matter the circumstances, he'll try. We find ourselves at a train station. Engine number three is getting ready. We see train station security toss a man out of one of the boxcars. And thankfully, it's not Toby No. Security is a rather threatening and is essentially the boss character of this level, you know, getting on the train. We see Laura, Albert, and Dylan hiding underneath the floorboards waiting for their opportunity. An opportunity comes crashing in as Mr. McCabe, with a large supply of pots and pans, accidentally runs into the security man. I'm really sorry. Mr. McCabe continues to stall for time as he watches in the background Laura, Albert, and Dylan safely stow away on the train. And with a smile, Mr. McCabe, oh, look at the time. I gotta go. I'm not gonna give you any more trouble. The whistle blows on the train, announcing its departure, and we are off. Inside, Laura, Albert, Dylan celebrate, what I would say is a little prematurely, as they yell, Woo! California, here we come! Cut to Charles arriving at the train station and inquires about any recent train departures, and we are told it left five minutes ago. Charles then inquires, were there two boys and a girl on it? And this station manager, there are no unaccompanied minors, and surely not any without a ticket. Charles turns to leave, and in the background, Mr. McCabe is fixing his wares, and he tells Charles, I saw who you are looking for, get on the train, and their next stop is Cadwell. Knowing he will never make it with the wagon and his somewhat exhausted team, he opts to drop that off for a faster car, horse, Inside the boxcar, Dylan looks tired. Laura inquires if he's feeling all right. Dylan responds with, I'm just thinking of the ocean. Albert proceeds to pull food out from his satchel, and as the trio unwrap their food, the man who was evicted earlier from the train proceeds to climb back into the boxcar. What are you doing? Albert, uh, same as you, traveling? This man, we'll just call him Angry Man. Angry Man is not a fan of having company in his boxcar. 
Stay away from me. However, in the same breath, he inquires about the sandwiches before demanding them being handed over. Albert says no at first, and this is when the man scrambles over on his hands and his knees up to Albert, and we get a creepy close-up. Give me those sandwiches. Laura, with an eye roll, fine, whatever, take them. Angry man moves back over to the other side of the box cart and eats those sandwiches angrily. Albert inquires why Laura did that. And Laura claims, um, I was trying to protect you. He might have killed you. And Dylan confesses he wasn't actually hungry. And Albert, well, I was hungry. Cut to Hal Burton at breakneck speed traveling along the train tracks before we are back in the boxcar. And the angry man is washing down those sandwiches with what probably is a bottle of whiskey. We see Laura pass Dylan's paint set over to him. What's that? Money? And he starts to demand the art supplies. Albert, again, defiantly says no. An angry man once again scampers over on hands and knees. And before you know it, Albert is hanging outside of the boxcar by angry man. Albert proceeds to grab a hold of the ladder rungs on the outside of the box cart. Laura? Well, it takes her two tries to knock Angry Man flying out of the box car. Personally, I would have picked up the bottle. With Albert inside, Laura stands there. Uh, uh, I, pu I pushed him off the train. That was so cool. And Albert decides from here on out, he will never make fun of girls again. At possibly the Cadwell train station, engine number three arrives and the train stops. Albert wakes everyone up and tells him, we can manage without food, but we're going to have to have some water. Outside, Albert runs into a musician, harmonica player, and proceeds to waste a good three or four minutes with trying to acquire the man's cup so he can bring water back to Dylan and Laura. Because again, there's a bottle in that boxcar somewhere, they could have used that instead. Anyway, Albert makes it back with that cup of water and places it on the stoop. And just as he's about to make his way inside, a hand drops on his shoulder. It's the train security guard from earlier, but the label on his hat says, Brakeman. As in, put on the brakes, not, I'm gonna break you. However, in this case, I think it applies both ways. Albert claims he was just looking inside, and Brakeman tells Albert, careful, there's rats in there. And typhus. Just kidding. Unfortunately, Laura and Dylan are caught and kicked off the train. But Dylan pleads, please, sir, I just want to see the ocean. Brakeman, threatening, bares his teeth, flashes his billy club, and says the next time he sees them, he won't be afraid to use it. It's at this moment, Charles arrives and heads directly to the boxcar and finds it empty, except for Albert's satchel. Outside and around the caboose, Charles inquires to the passengers if anyone has seen three children, but I would say two kids and a teenager. Again, Dylan's mustache is always catching the light. The train passenger points in a direction and says, over there, by the lake. And we get a thank you. Thank you very much from Charles. And busted. Charles, a little heated, says he should spank them. Do you know how bad you scared us? Come on, let's go. Laura and Albert are ready to give up. But Dylan says, nope, I have to keep going. Charles, getting a little angry, I chased you halfway across the country. I think he meant county, however. Charles claims he can't let Dylan just go. Dylan, dude, you're not my dad. I'm not going back to my mom so she can watch me die like she did my pa. I'm never going to get another chance. And I'm running out of time. Charles says, but Doc Baker said rest. Dylan, with an eye roll, 
Whatever. That man doesn't know anything. I'd rather be out here doing what's really important to me. Instead of being immobilized and waiting, I promised my pa I would go one day. And I have to keep that promise. Charles, what about your mom? Dylan, I want her to remember me as I was. It's my life, isn't it? So it's my choice. And with whatever time I have left, I'm going to do it my way. Laura pulls out the old you did say pa card and reminds him about the conversation in the barn. You said you would help a friend. Rapid eye-blinking Charles shows up out of nowhere and protests, but I don't have any more money. I used it to rent the horse to get here. Albert reminds them not to worry. They can hop in that boxcar again. And Charles, rapid eye-blinking Charles, states, I don't know how I got talked into this. And they are back on board, Charles included, headed out to the West Coast. Nighttime into day, morning, Dylan and Albert are waking up and they're wondering their location. Albert inquires how Dylan is doing. Dylan, about as good as one can be with leukemia. His words, not mine. And then starts to share the news that he's hungry. Albert then decides that he is going to come up with breakfast. But shh, don't tell Pa. He wouldn't approve. Albert then proceeds to climb outside of the boxcar and on top and make his way down to the passenger trains. And inside, he manages to convince the conductor, who is pulling double duty as food vendor, that he would like two ham and cheese sandwiches, two egg sandwiches, four apples, and a whole serving of milk. All at the price of $1.08. It's for him and his aunt crime. With his hands loaded, the conductor asks for the funds, and Albert points to the next car and says, My aunt is in there. She'll pay you. The food vendor, conductor, looks into the other boxcar. Where is she? And Albert, Albert seems to be now be influenced by Charles and his dad jokes. As he yells and flees the scene, Ha ha, crime doesn't pay. There is an eye roll for me on that. Making his way back to the boxcar, that is when Albert is spotted by Breakman. Inside the boxcar, Charles and Laura are waking up. Charles scans the room and looks at Dylan. Where's Albert? This is when Albert shows up with breakfast. Of course, Charles is unhappy about this theft and informs him at the next stop, they're going to spend whatever money they have left to pay for this food. Okay, let's eat. But this is when Breakman enters. Nobody rides my train for free. Now you're gonna pay. Charles reacts immediately and rushes into Breakman, knocking him back. The Breakman can swing a club, but he is terrible at swinging a fist once he's disarmed by Charles, who, by the way, delivers three blows to the gut and one to the face before we get a TKO. Let's give a special shout out to Joe Kagan at this moment. Charles picks up the billy club and points it at Breakman. Well, let me tell you how this is going down. I've got a sick boy here, just say dying Charles, on this train who wants to see the ocean. And he is going to see it. He continues to apologize for the food and explains that they will pay the dollar and eight cents for it. But nobody is going to stop us from our destination. Do you understand? Breakman agrees to understand and leaves. That wasn't tough loving Charles. That was just tough Charles, which I love. Another night, Dylan is coughing more and more and rolls over to reveal a nosebleed. Charles comes to his aid and Albert's, it's not much farther. Dylan, for the first time, sounds like he's giving up. It's just another one of my crazy ideas. Albert encourages him to come on, we can do it. Look how far we've made it. And Laura, 
This is when Laura turns into TLL. Tough-loving Laura. The heck you can't, Dylan. You got me all excited about the ocean. The least you could do is see it with me. Facepalm. It's tough love, but she is still making it about her. Back to Albert, he says, What's the point of going to the ocean? Without you, it's just a lot of water. These two are relentless. We did a lot to get you here. Dylan then announces, Well, I have a better team than Odysseus. And he made it. The train continues onward to its destination. We cut to inside the boxcar. Everyone's asleep. Bell starts to ring, and the train is pulling to a stop at a station. And holy spit, the closed captions says they're seagulls. And Charles, looking outside, announces we're in San Francisco. And where's the first place they go? The Mission District. Or at least the Mission. That's the building they're stepping out of. It says so on the sign over their heads. After their warm meal, it is discussed that the ocean is still just a few miles left to go. But it could be a while before they even get a ride. And of course, at this moment, a coach pulls up. One man exit, turns around and says, What are your plans, Mr. Hurst? And I gag. Mr. Hurst mentions how he's going to head up to the coast. There's a bit of property out there that has this interest. Needless to say, Charles overhears this and jumps into action at this opportunity. And wow, Mr. Hurst has a very striking jawline. Charles tells Mr. Hurst that he has three kids from Minnesota with him who want to see the ocean and simply need a lift. Uber, ride, wagon, and handsome Mr. Hurst says, let's ride. We watch as this coach makes its way through the countryside. Inside, Dylan is sleeping next to Charles. Charles is holding his hand for comfort. And handsome Hurst, he stops that wagon, points outside, and announces, there, there's your ocean. Charles tells Laura and Albert to go ahead. Handsome Mr. Hurst asks Charles if he can share their story with his readers in his newspaper. He finds it very inspirational, and he even offers to pay for the story. Ooh, there's something you can put down on Charles's resume. At first, Charles is reluctant to take the money, but handsome Mr. Hurst says, It's a long ride back to Walnut Grove. When you travel back, you might as well do it in comfort. Rapid eye-blinking Charles takes the money and runs. Just kidding. He says thank you and puts it in his bra strap. Thank you, Mr. Hurst. And Mr. Handsome Hurst says, My name is William, and thank you. Charles wakes up Dylan and carries him out of the wagon and down to the shore. Cradling in his arms, Charles tells Dylan, We're here, son. Dylan opens his eyes and starts to lift his head and smiles. He's fulfilled his promise. It runs right into the sky. And the light, as it shines on the sea, it's blinding. How far does it go? Dylan makes the request to walk on his own. And at this point, my mouth drops. Why are they still even wearing shoes? We watch as Dylan makes his way to the water. He turns and says, Thank you all. Thank you. And we watch as Dylan makes his way right into the water. It is a long take, but it is one I can appreciate. In fact, Dylan's walk turns into running. And not just any running, but slow motion Baywatch-style running except away from the camera. Dylan's in the water, splashing around. We cut to Charles, Laura, Albert, myself included. We all have wobbly chins at this moment. Except for Dylan. Dylan looks like he's having a Jack Dawson moment at the bow of the Titanic, having his king of the world 
moment. Wow. Out of all the things I never, never expected to see on Little House on the Prairie, the ocean was absolutely one of those things. Anyway, I was in fifth grade when I got my interest into Greek mythology, and oddly enough, it all started from video games. Back for the original Nintendo, there was the Battle of Olympus, name-dropping all the famous characters of Greek mythology, but not going into too much detail, because of course, this is all modified for a game. So how did I nurture this curiosity for Greek mythology? Of course, looking through books. Because books is all what we had available at our school library. In addition to the school library's collection of Greek mythology, I was really excited to find a book at my own home that talked about Greece, classical Greece, from the Great Ages of Man, a history of world collection from Time Life Books. Written by A. C. W. Baura and the editors at Time Life and published in 1965. And although I was exposed to multiple pictures of classical Greek artwork, which highlighted the human body in full view. But what interested me the most were the last few pages before the index. One layout had a listing of the Olympian families with some really awesome illustrations that reminded me of stained glass and more of an explanation of who these gods and goddesses were. The following pages included a gallery of heroes, again, with those stained glass-like illustrations. And what is a little funny to note is Odysseus is mentioned here, but only in the last two sentences on the page. During that fifth grade year, we also had a student teacher in class by the name of Miss Fields, and that is her real name, or at least it was back then, and she noticed my interest in Greek mythology. And when she left, she gave me a book entitled Gods, Demigods, and Demons, an Encyclopedia of Greek Mythology by Bernard Evslin. And on the inside, she had left an inscription dated June 6, 1990, to John. This book is a little worn. I got it when I was about your age and had a great interest in Greek mythology. I hope you will pass it on to someone with a similar interest someday, Miss Fields. Clearly, I didn't do that. However, the reason I couldn't do it is because it reminded me of how valuable it was to have that teacher who noticed an interest and helped encourage it. I also spent a lot of time with that book over that summer because that was the first summer after my parents' divorce. I was a freshman in high school when we had to read the Odyssey for class. I had to read it another time when I took a Greek mythology class my junior year of university. And what is the moral of all of this? Video games encouraged me to read more. A good teacher leaves a lasting impression. And sometimes having a book is a nice breakaway when things might be a little rough. And with that, let's get to reviewing and rating this episode. Albert must really be missing his old lifestyle. Did you see how quick he was to join Dylan on this odyssey across country? From hopping into a boxcar, mouthing off to dangerous individuals, climbing aboard a moving train, copious amounts of lying and stealing. He's just been begging to get out of Walnut Grove for a while, it seems. But he was right to come along on this adventure. Dylan wouldn't have made it that far at all. Other than the name of the episode and Dylan sharing the story of the Odyssey with Laura and Albert, well, secretly, I was hoping for something a little bit more that could be a reference homage to the Odyssey. And really, we just got a man in an eye patch named Mr. McCabe, which, again, I think that's the first time we've had any character as such. And then, of course, there's dreamy and godlike William Randolph Hearst, who's not only able to take them the rest of the way on this adventure, but in also providing a means in which Charles and everyone else can get home. But no, nothing. 
There was no bag of wind, just a bag of sandwiches. There were no enticing sirens, zero man-eating monsters, or humans. It was just an adventure. With its own mini-boss, Angry Man, and Big Boss, Breakman. As briefly as we were introduced to Dylan, we're immediately hit with the news he's gonna die from leukemia. Which, again, by the end of the episode, I was teary-eyed and wobbly-chinned. But couldn't we have at least heard about Dylan once before killing him? You know, as the town is coming back to life, it could be announced, we've got new families coming in. This one, this one, and here's a family that's just a mother and a son who happens to be named Dylan. Or maybe one day at school, Allie G is taking attendance and she calls for Dylan. And he's not there because he's homesick. So Laura volunteers to take him his homework and maybe help him with his math. Those are just two ideas that could have been introduced and maybe care for Dylan just a little bit more. And sadly, Dylan's mom apparently is not important to be ever introduced. All we get to know about her is that her husband's already died from some unknown illness, and now her son is also going to die. But no, sadly, she never gets a name. Also, I find it a little difficult to believe it takes her a few moments to realize where her son is heading. Is Dylan only painting pictures of the ocean because of his obsession with the Odyssey? And why the Odyssey? Did Dylan's dad introduce the book to him? because that would be a nice way to tie everything up together. But no, we don't hear that. We hear from Dylan that his dad just wanted to see the ocean. And from there, let's see about this week's Little House moment, which goes to Dylan when he tells Charles by the side of that pond, he's not going home. He loves his mom. He's concerned for her. And he voices that. He doesn't need her to see him the same way she saw her husband. Yeah, and at this point, as Laura said a few episodes ago, when it comes to doing things, the bigger, the better. So I guess a special shout out to the Ingalls Make-A-Wish Foundation for making Dylan's dream come true. And let's finally get to rating this episode. The number one thing I wanted more from this episode was build up. I just wish there was more of a build up slash introduction to Dylan here. Yes, William Randolph Hearst was correct. Dylan's story is inspiring. But again, think of how much more gut-wrenching it would be if we had met Dylan at least once before. I know it's just a moment in the prairie verse, but young Thomas had a few outstanding lines in a number of episodes. And then they killed him off. We met young Thomas in Winoka. We watched him travel across multiple counties. And poor Thomas is just a footnote compared to Dylan. I also wish we had Dylan's last name and, um, and his mom's at some point as well, which happens to be Gwen and their last name is Whitaker. It says her name in the opening credits, but the name Whitaker comes from IMDB. Oh, P.S. Angry Man is listed as Ferret. In the credits as well. And it's sad to read that the actor Stephen Shaw who played Dylan died in a head-on collision back in 1990. This was a great adventure um, and I love the last scene is of Dylan standing in the water achieving his dream, his goal. We know it's gonna happen next so we really don't have to see it. And again Little House on the Prairie surprises me with its topics here. With Dylan, we're presented with this idea of death with dignity. He knows he's terminal, so instead of, of course, resting as prescribed, he decides, fork it, I'm going to go fulfill my dream, which is no easy task, and it's going to lead to exhaustion, an acceleration of his illness. And Charles, Laura, and Albert are all there to help. It's a weird twist, but they all know what they signed up for to make him comfortable and make sure he gets there. And what a surprise to have another celebrity show up in the Prairieverse. Again, big shocker to see the Pacific Ocean, but to see William Randolph Hearst 
And since, well, he is in charge of publishing at this time, the year has to be around 1887. Him and Harriet need to have a conversation. Aside from Dylan popping up out of the blue, as well as his leukemia, and some pretty prominent characters not getting any acknowledgement whatsoever, I've really loved this episode. Oh, yeah, I, I do have one more complaint. Why did nobody take their shoes off when they finally got to the ocean? And that is why we are going to give Season 5's final episode, The Odyssey, a 4.75 bonnet rating. If one thing Season 5 has shown is that Season 5 got a budget increase. And those are some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. So with that, Season 5 is now complete. And double-checking a few episode ratings, Season 5's total bonnet rating is 101.5, leading to an average bonnet score of 4.229, which of course, rounding up, is 4.25. I have to confess, I'm a little sad to read. However, looking over that list of episodes, it's clear to see how it happened. Season 3, here at From Plum Creek with Love, is still the highest rated season at 4.5 average bonnets. However, it was a shorter season that started off with Johnny Cash, had only two two-part episodes, which were very thrilling, and only one long-run episode. And although the Overall, Season 3 story arc, which again, probably didn't exist, seems a little more fractured. Each of the episodes, aside from the two-parters, just had really solid stories from beginning to end. Which means Season 5's biggest problem is its increase of number of episodes in the season, its number of two-part episodes in the season, and of course, those long-run episodes didn't help either. Or I guess another way of saying it is there were a lot of great stories in season five overall, but some of the wrong stories got told with those two-part and long-run episodes. But the number one thing I loved about season five is how it worked on moving the story of the Ingalls, Walnut Grove, forward. We begin right where we left off at season four, we have a complete change of scenery, we introduce a new character, and we eventually make it back to Walnut Grove. Now, personally, I could have spent more time in Winoka. Imagine Someone Please Love Me and The Craftsman both taking place in Winoka. It's totally possible. Plus, upon returning to Walnut Grove, we even get Mary and Adam and everyone at the school and Hester Sue. So all of a sudden, we have a new setting that can take place in Walnut Grove. So that expands the Prairie Verse more, and then we had more returning characters from previous seasons than we've ever had before. Joe Kagan, Kezia Horn, Mr. Larrabee, in addition to, of course, all the Prairie Verse blips, with the biggest one being young Charles arriving and disguising himself as Albert. And we definitely had a lot more darker themes in this episode. Anti-Semitism, racism, tax evasion, fat shaming, abusing the power of the press, divorce, alcoholism, trauma, faking injuries. This season was awesome. Well, every season is awesome, but for some reason, I just expected it to be a little higher. It is also interesting to note, yes, season five definitely had a bigger budget, but season five also had a change in, get this, series script and continuity. So looking at the IMDB for Little House on the Prairie, full cast and crew, there's actually a listing for script and continuity. And Little House began with script supervisor Mary Yerk, for 90 episodes, 74 to 78. Followed that up with 
Erica Werner, who was script supervisor for 52 episodes starting in 1979. Mary Yerk did 90 episodes, so doing the math, Erica Werner took over right at the beginning of season five. And it does kind of show, there does seem to feel a bit of continuity solidifying here, which is great. But my biggest issue, I guess, then with Erica Werner is, does she know the months of a year? And does she know what seasons follow which? Because in this season, we've had three summers, a winter, mm, I don't know, maybe we've had four summers. Remember, we did see Fagin grow from a young calf to an early, mature, young bull. Once we returned to Walnut Grove, things just seemed to go a little out of sequence. A slightly more logical, chronological order. Let's put the Lake Kezia monster, the craftsman, and the god sister all before Blind Journey Part 1 and 2. There's no mention of Mary, Adam, or the Blind School in, in any of those episodes. Why we're at it, let's also completely get rid of Someone Please Love Me. We could put Mortal Mission somewhere more near the center of the season. You know, very similar to the way Christmas at Plum Creek and the blizzard were more centered in their season. So that way, the last part of season five is once again, just summertime. But no, alas, sadly, poor Erica does not realize that there is also fall and spring. It was also interesting to note the lack of Nellie Olsen being an antagonist. Other than the cheaters, Nellie is really just a small bit player in not even a large number of episodes. It also should be noted that there was also a lack of Laura being the central character in this season. Although um, she continues to make those episodes still about herself in almost every one of her scenes. Lastly, let's give a special shout out to the moms in season five. I mean, Caroline has always been boss B number one, but what about Bess? here in Mortal Mission, pulling up a shotgun and willing to shoot her husband to save her son. Which is the second time we see that in this season. Because earlier, Adele Larrabee also told Mr. Larrabee to stay away or else. And although not a mother, Mary's maternal instincts kicked in when she went headfirst into a dust storm to find poor Sue Susan Goodspeed hiding out in Albert's old studio apartment under the loading dock. Heck, even Harriet Olsen sacrificing her self-image and dignity just so her children can get the education she wants them to have. Season 5, I loved you. And again, just slightly disappointed at your slightly lower than expected rating. And we are finally here at season five's end of season awards. To begin, I would like to announce our first change of category. This season, we are saying goodbye first to favorite old time classic word and replacing it with when will I see you again award, which is really just a, a wish list of the one character I would really want to see again in an episode. So our inaugural award here is going to go to Young Samson. Young Samson, and I hate to have to say it this way, had a very eye-opening experience on that blind journey. He was made aware of the issues of racism, and Harriet came to terms what her attitude taught. And in the end, Harriet grabs Samson's hand and tells Mr. Larrabee off, and that is a friendship relationship that I would like to see more of. Could you imagine an episode in the future, Samson? I'm running out to the mercantile to say hi to Mrs. Olsen. Do you need anything? Plus, I would like to see the hip students, Walnut Grove school students, intermix, mingle, socialize, and imagine what would happen there. So, Samson, I hope we get to see you again. Next up, we have our best use of food, which of course goes without saying. 
the anthrax-infused mutton. Instead of food just being in a scene, this tainted food made an entire episode. I don't think we've had that happen before in Little House on the Prairie. Like I said, season five had its budget increase, and that's why the best action scene is really hard to narrow it down. It's like a three-way tie, and two of those scenes are near identical. But as thrilling as that dust storm was, it was hard to see it. And for a small distillery, it was a rather large explosion at the end of the God Sister. And that is why we have to say thank you to Jeff Standish and his friend Spencer sneaking up into the storeroom to light off one of those fireworks and essentially torching the entire place gets season five's best action scene. Really, that was like the last seven minutes of that episode. It just did not stop, and it was so exciting. Plus, it signified we were done with Winoka. Well, mostly done with Winoka. Moving on is to our, yes, our cringiest moment, our most uncomfortable scene. And while Charles's stand-up has been the recipient in the past, thanks to revamping his act and adding Joe Kagan as his partner, he is in the safe. And Mr. Larrabee throwing the N-word out, amongst a number of other offensive things, it's not cringeworthy as this year's recipient, which goes to I Know No Boundaries, Widow Mumford. If I have one word to describe the Widow Mumford, lecherous. She is so ready to do stuff with Toby Nose hands, it's uncomfortable. And her switch from mild-mannered widow to near-nymphomania in sheer seconds suggests this woman might be possessed. Which, I'm all for a healthy sex-positive lifestyle, but she comes off a little too forward without Toby Nose consent. Following cringe, we move on to WTF. Things just never expected to see in the Prairieverse. And again, thanks to Season 5's budget increase, there were plenty of those moments to pick from. From the ocean, multiple building explosions, dust storms, epidemics, moving art installations, you know, the Lakeisia monster. Heck, even that really creepy stranger that came out of nowhere when Albert and Andy were trying to get back home. But really, nothing tops Season 5's WTF moment in which Carrie, along with her friend Alyssa, go to heaven. It's been a long time since we've had any sort of dream sequence and this, this just took it to the next level. Not only was it just being in heaven, we met St. Peter's as well as a giant projected St. Matthew's playing with season 5's most surprising returning character, Jack. Never, never, never expected this when I started watching Little House on the Prairie. Now moving on to our second new category this year, replacing the duo category of best dress, there is now the Facepalm Award. <gasps> Awarded to the individual with by far the stupidest idea in the entire season. And while Garth and Virgil Fenton selling tainted mutton might seem like the most obvious thing, and although I don't really have a rule on it, uh, young boy Stanish already gets the award for best action scene. But lighting off a firework pointed outside in an establishment that's made entirely out of wood and also storing more fireworks should be up there. And no, it doesn't go to Sterling Murdoch. Who? You know, the editor of The Pen and Plow, the one who decided to give Harriet a job as a reporter, which eventually led to a huge debacle and him going bankrupt. Deep down, I would really like to give it to the person who made the decision to give Toby No a second episode, or Carrie an episode. No. The inaugural Facepalm Award goes to... Young Andy Garvey, who decided, after being concussed, 
to grab a lantern to head out into the dark to get a horse and then leave said lantern to go riding off into the dark. If he needed the lantern to find the horse in the dark, he sure is going to need it as he's riding said horse into the dark. And again, why would you operate heavy machinery with a concussion? All right. And now on to best couple of season five, which hands down goes to Harriet and Mr. Olson. Mr. Olson is a changed man thanks to Anoka. He's not only letting us know, but he's letting Harriet know. There is a shift in power. And not only that, but there is a shift in emotion. We are getting to see a softer side of Harriet. From her work as a barmaid at the beginning of the episode, to understanding that she is a bit racist and is now trying to be a better person in her community. Albeit she had the slight hiccup where she did purchase Kezia's property out from underneath her. But, you know, Kezia did not pay her taxes for a few years, so she did have plenty of time. But each and every one of those times now where it seems as though Harriet is going too far, Mr. Olson is putting his foot down and either tying her to a bed in her corset, pulling out farming equipment and telling her she's going to cut her, or supplying three young artists with materials needed to frighten his family talk about checks and balances. And here we are at our final category of best characters, which again is broken up into three parts. Our guest or single episode characters, our supporting cast members, and of course, main characters. There were so many great characters that showed up only once. And as I've already said, I would love to see Samson again. And for the first time ever, this year's award for best character in a single episode, there's a tie. <gasps> and it goes to Walnut Grove's very own and perhaps very first cat lady, Amanda Cooper, as well as Isaac Singerman. Her for comedic timing and him for the valuable lessons he had to share. Alas, Isaac Singerman will never get a chance to ever return, and ugh, I hope we never see Amanda Cooper again, because if we do, we just might have to see Toby No. Next, we move on to Best Supporting Character, and it's about time it's happened, but Mr. Olsen, I loved you this season. For standing up for what you believe is right, for being a great marksman, as well as contributing to the arts, surviving anthrax, as well as continuing to survive his family. Mr. Olson is not aware of how strong he is becoming. And finally, to our main character cast, which is going to go to... <laughs> Young Charles, a.k.a. Albert Ingalls. This young boy blips into this prairie verse and he just steals literally everything. He steals screen time away from Laura. His street smarts demonstrates he knows how to take care of himself in a lot of different situations. He's absolutely a go-getter. How many jobs did he acquire this season? Again, many, because really he's a young Charles Ingalls. And... For the first time, it seemed as though we had a character who was a realist and also stood by his convictions. Albert, young Charles, Ingalls, is a great addition to the Prairieverse. And, as always, those are some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode, and I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode or any previous episode or season from Plum Creek with Love at gmail.com as well as Instagram are the primary ways if you'd like to contact me. The Spotify playlist for Season 5 is now officially completed. And just like Season 5 of Little House on the Prairie, it is also overstuffed, which you might have noticed. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to From Plum Creek with Love. And of course, now that we have completed season five, we'll be taking a two-week break before we return. So if you haven't hit that subscribe button on your platform of choice, go ahead and do so. 
That way you'll get notification when From Plum Creek with Love returns with the first episode for season six. And again, thank you to everyone who has been listening, either from the beginning or cherry picking your way through this podcast. It's a lot, I know. But thank you, thank you, thank you. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, A Little House on the Prairie Podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. And until next time, take care. Baloney.